Welcome to STEMiverse Podcast, episode 55. In this episode, Peter talks with Norman Pirolo. Norman is the editor of WoodSkills magazine, an online woodworking instructor and author. In a previous life, he was a C++ developer for some of the largest computer companies in the world. He decided to turn his life around and dedicate himself to CAD design, prototyping and creating contemporary furniture at his company, Pirolo Design. Norman writes and publishes woodworking courseware on his website and also teaches woodworking in the traditional in-person way. He's authored and published four books. The Wood Artist, Creating Art Through Wood, Start Your Own Woodworking Business, From High-Tech to Low-Tech, A Woodworker's Journey, which is a book that I'm currently reading, and Abstracted, An Artist's Journey. Most recently, Norman published WoodSkills, a biannual magazine about fine woodworking. This is Stemiverse Podcast, episode 55. Stemiverse is a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. Our mission is to help educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. Whether you are a professional or casual teacher teaching in a classroom, or a parent or caretaker teaching at home, this podcast brings you the knowledge and experiences of practitioners, academics, entrepreneurs, and lifelong learners who are passionate about education and strive every day to help our children prepare for life in a world of radical change, and why not, abundance. Okay, so here we are. This is episode 54, I believe, and uh, my guest today is Norman Pirolo, uh, who is a woodworker from Canada. Hey, Norman, how are you today? Very good. Yourself, Peter? Great. It's a a nice uh, morning here in Sydney, and the weather is changing. As I was saying in actually my my previous podcast, and I'm looking forward to a nice spring and summer. How how are things in, in Ottawa, in Canada? Well, we've actually had a very warm, beautiful summer, and we're heading into fall now. And but mm. it's the summer seems to be prolonged, and it's just it's another summer day today. So we're expecting everything to change very, very soon yeah. into fall weather. Yeah, it's uh, so, uh, I particularly like changes in weather. Spring and autumn are my best um, seasons in mm-hmm. the year. I guess it's it's change. Change is happening, and that's where you see it uh, in the weather, at least. Yes, yes, it keeps me, it keeps us busy for <laughs> all the, the things we, we put off or we postpone yeah. from season to season. So, uh, I guess change is good in general, right? It's not just the seasons, it's life. <laughs> yes, yes. We're, we're out on a country property here, so we have uh, a few acres and it's a considerable amount of work for each season. And I, I like to tell people I look forward to the winter season because that's when it slows down completely. We we have snow here, so everything <laughs> shuts down. Yeah. So I can I can focus more on on my uh, on my woodworking and my uh, instructing and and course material. Yeah, I, I find myself being very productive as well in winter. Uh, it's like inside mm-hmm. weather, <laughs> so you can, exactly you get exactly. to concentrate on work. So, uh, Norman, I'd like to, uh, as, as always, just uh, give you a few minutes to tell us a bit about you and, and you know, where you come from and uh, uh, a quick summary of your life, I guess, that brings you to where you are now. Sure. Uh, I'm uh, born and raised in Canada, and I lived in different cities in Canada. At the moment, I live in, uh, well, I lived here for uh, 
over 30 years in this particular city, Ottawa, and I fell, I fell in love with it, but I lived in other cities, uh, born in Toronto, Ontario. Mm-hmm. So my uh, my upbringing was, uh, was mostly in Toronto and the city of Montreal and Canada. And I, uh, my teenage years were uh, I was sort of inventive and uh, I like to tinker with things and play with electronics. I have an electronics background, I'm an electrotechnologist by career. That was my first, very first career when I'm in my late teens, early 20s. You said uh, electrotechnologist. What is that? Yes. I haven't heard of that term before. Uh, okay, well, I guess it's not an international term. It's, um, it's, it's a Canadian term, I would imagine, or possibly US. Uh, it's just a notch above electronic technician. Mm-hmm. So we not only uh, breadboard circuits and all that, but we do some design. So it's somewhere between a technician and an engineer. Right. It's a three-year college program. It still goes on, so it's probably changed considerably since I've gone through. But <laughs> right. So that was my first career, and then I uh, I uh, moved into. I was actually an in-house uh, technologist for a company for a couple of years, and then I uh, I worked for large multinational computer firms for uh, and for decades, literally decades, and uh, they're mostly American companies. Uh, Possibly companies you're familiar with, like mm-hmm. uh, MAI, Digital Digital Equipment Corporation, mm-hmm. Data General, Hewlett Packard. So I had a number of years with each of those companies. So I, at one point, my first career was a was a three year technology electrotechnology program, but I I started to develop a, uh, a fondness for computer software, mm-hmm. and uh, computer software when I went through the when I, my formative years were 1980s, 1990s was a very exciting time yep. for computer software. There were so many advances happening quickly. So I, uh, I, I embraced software and I, I began to study it. So I actually worked towards a computer science degree, right. which I have today. I completely did a shift from, uh, from the hardware world of electronics to software. Hmm. And I became a regional support person for these companies and I supported Unix and and wrote some code and then I studied C C for a year. Wow. Became a C C programmer and all that. So you did that like as a second career essentially, right? That was my second my main my, my main career. Right. My main uh I say corporate career you might say. Yeah. And then I slowly became uh disillusioned with everything because I had been in that industry for so many years, and I've seen I had seen so much change occurring so rapidly that I I just I just couldn't keep up. You know, it is it isn't a mm. nine to five job anymore. It's it's like a twenty four seven job trying to just keep up with technology and software and hardware. And it was exciting, but that, that excitement sort of wore off when. I just couldn't keep up anymore, and I started to look towards something a little or considerably more slower paced. Yeah. And I uh, began to investigate woodworking because I had worked with my father in my early uh, years, and I remember some good things about woodworking. So, so I studied cabinet making at a at a college, and I uh, worked towards a cabinet making diploma. Succeeded in getting that, and. Uh, Never actually worked in cabinet making. I did this while I was still in the uh, in the computer field, and I slowly envisioned myself uh, moving away from the computer field and into woodworking, because I realized at some point that I 
I much prefer creating tangible objects instead of writing code. I mean, right. Writing code was exciting for me and still is for a lot of people, but I, I just had to get away from that and create objects, and I was so much happier doing that. So I uh, strive towards establishing myself as a woodworker, furniture maker, and just did it part-time for a number of years. And then finally, uh, uh, along the way, I went through three downsizings with these companies I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And I, uh, it's like I like to tell people, three strikes and I'm out. So, so at one point, I made the, uh, the official decision to leave the industry and just be on my own. And, and I did some contract consulting work for a while and then but i just kept going back to woodworking and furniture mm -hmm. making so uh, my spouse was very supportive of me just just giving up on the uh, on the computer industry and, and reverting back to woodworking so i'm not sure how much more yeah. you want but no that's, that's great that. <laughs> from here there's so many places we can go to like uh, i'm looking at your books for example for example and they are all about you know woodworking and um uh, one of them in particular, uh, I really like the title. It's very catchy, from high tech to low tech, and I think it's a book in which mm -hmm. you talk about this story in obviously a lot more detail. So um, I'd like to, uh, as as part of your journey, to maybe dig into that transition from low tech, as you uh, from from high tech, as you say, to low tech. So you you spend a bit of time uh, as a independent contractor, still in software. Uh, right, because that gave you the opportunity to spend more time uh, building up your woodworking skills and eventually your woodworking business, right? So exactly, can you tell us about that a bit more? Uh, especially like the transition. It's like I imagine spring now, like spring comes in mind. <laughs> You're going mm -hmm. away from your corporate work uh, in winter. Uh, your vision is the summer where. Uh, you'll be a full-time woodworker, but you are in the middle right now. What was it like for you? How long did it last? How, how did you make it work for you and your family? Well, the, uh, because, uh, as you mentioned, there's a book about it, and it was mm. quite a long transition. And actually, the transition began as a part-time. So I did this part-time. I migrated from a hobby to a small part-time business, and uh, I just wanted a taste of a woodworking business. Mm. So I developed a small woodworking business and it was fairly successful but I mm. couldn't uh, I couldn't manage the business with uh, with my career and that was a little bit of a struggle and uh, so I stepped I stepped back from that and went and, and immersed myself back into my career because I, I was afraid of uh, repercussions of abandoning my career or not keep keeping oh, up with technology right. yep so uh, it was it's not easy it's not an easy transition uh, unless you just do a cold turkey for example. So I'm thinking that uh, like an obstacle that you had was that it wasn't just a matter of you know dropping your corporate work uh, specifically because you were in the software industry and the industry moves so fast forward you know with new developments, new tools, uh, you know, new cloud comes in, makes things different. So you, you not only had to keep some customers, so you have a bit of income coming in, but also you need to keep training yourself and retraining yourself in that same field. So that makes it even harder to abandon it right away. Well, that you hit on a very good point because my last position was fairly intensive. Uh, C, C++ hmm. programming support within Unix uh, environment. And uh, there was considerable amount of training and uh, 
I just had to make a conscious decision to uh, to just uh, walk away from it yeah. after my last downsizing. So yeah, it was not an easy decision because I kept, uh, you know, it was always in the back of my mind, am I making a huge mistake here? And what am I doing? And I'm going from the, uh, the modern era to the, uh, <laughs> to, to uh, a sort of uh, taking a step back in time, doing woodworking. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is, uh, I was as I was thinking about this and you know, preparing, so woodworking, that is like the first maker was a woodworker <laughs> thousands mm -hmm. of years ago, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get we'll get to that as well. I think that's that's very interesting. So, so you decided at some point to just leave right and, and become a woodworker you still need to train yourself i know that your father was a woodworker is that right and you were and you have memories uh, of him well he had different he had different uh studied he had different careers himself uh so i take a lot from him in that regard but uh it was mostly a hobby for him so i worked with right. him and i, I enjoyed the hands-on aspect of it i've got so. to disclose as well my, my grandfather was a carpenter so um uh and my uncle is uh, has got a a furniture business so he actually makes one of a kind furniture pieces or chairs table and you know it's not ikea style those are very elaborate pieces so what i remember from those especially from my uncle is all the machinery that he's got in his workshop and that he's always covered in sawdust <laughs> And it smells of the various chemicals that you use to cover uh, the wood. Um, I don't know the, the technical terminology, but you know the particular smell of freshly um, uh, sort of finished uh, piece when it, when it dries. Yeah, as, as it's as it's drying. That, that's just that's a smell that I've got from my uncle. So, uh, how did you go about you know learning this art because I know that you're putting art in there as well a couple of the books for example you got one book called the wood artist creating art through wood so it's not just something that you can go to a, a technical school and learn right uh, it's quite a bit more so can you tell us about your transition from you know an apprentice woodworker I guess to an artist okay well after having studied cabinet making as I mentioned much earlier uh and uh, so I could actually mm -hmm. work in the industry as a cabinet maker. That that really did not satisfy me. I wanted uh, very much like your uncle. I, that's what I do today. I do unique, one of a kind pieces. Mm. And uh, so I'm actually <laughs> when I was fairly intrigued when you were, were mentioned all that. Yeah. So so I not only am a furniture maker, but I design furniture and I uh, I teach furniture making and woodworking. Yeah. So I've sort of uh, developed a small niche for myself. And so I don't just want to be a, your conventional woodworker. And people sort of look down on woodworking and associated with carpentry. And hmm. and sometimes they, mis they mistake me and they call me, they'll call me a carpenter. <laughs> and there's completely different uh, disciplines. So I, uh, I'm more into the, uh, the science of woodworking and uh, furniture making and intense design of furniture and uh, um, and I work a lot with hand tools mm -hmm. going back to mm -hmm. a tangible a tangible component so I've actually taken up hand tool and I instruct using hand tools so I've sort of developed a niche for my, myself in that regard and now you're you mentioned the wood art which is an interesting mm. 
Mike can get into that if you if you want to understand how that evolved. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, just want to say that woodworking has got its technical aspects, like learning how to do specific things, like you know, join two pieces of wood together, use a particular tool, right. and things like that. But then the, the the personal aspect comes out, and that's what I call the art. Like, how do you make a table look? You know, there's so many different ways, and one of those ways is your way, which is very personal. So w- when did that aspect start coming out from you? You did your cabinet making and then eventually became an artist. How did this happen? Well, no, what, what happened is it's an interesting development because along the way, so I, I, I'm kind of person, and I guess I just follows from my uh, my software background that I, I immerse myself into mm-hmm. a subject and I try to learn and learn it in depth. So not just a woodworker, but I tried to understand the methodology behind joinery and and design and wood movement and it's, it's a quite uh, quite a science actually. Yeah. So uh, along the way, uh, have you ever heard of the word maquette? M a q u e t t e or a scale may, model? Is I may have word, heard of scale it. Model? I can't really say that I know what it is though. Okay, well it's just essentially a, it's a fancy word for a scale model. Right. So for example, if I'm if I'm designing a piece of furniture. It's very expensive in materials to actually build a piece of furniture based upon a design that might or might not work. Hmm. So you might have functionality, but the form the form isn't there. So what uh, furniture designers do is they create scale models. Hmm. They're uh, a fifth or a sixth scale. They're a furniture. They're called maquettes. And then they can get it more of a 3D perspective of the furniture mm-hmm. piece. We, we do that in CAD too now. <laughs> oh, yeah, but, I was going to say. <laughs> no, I use, uh, I use uh, CAD just as much as I do. So you're not just uh, low-tech, uh, you're, <laughs> you're both low-tech and yeah. high-tech at the same time now. Exactly. So I'm, so I'm able to build these skill models. I can show people, I can make enhancements and make some changes with very little use of material yeah. and very rapidly build them with scrap wood. So along the way, I began to create some skill models and I uh, an exhibition came up. It was a craft, uh, a touring craft exhibition in 2009, and uh, they were accepting uh, wood objects. One, uh, going back to the type of person I am, I'm not ever content with just making a conventional scale model. I had mm-hmm. to dress it up, and so it looked as it looked so real that I would take photos of it, and people thought it was actually a full scale piece of furniture. So I, I made a few of these pieces, and I entered two of them into this uh, touring exhibition, and then they were accepted. And this was my entry into the art world. And uh, then I began to focus a little bit on on creating uh, uh, small-scale wood objects, not necessarily based on furniture, but just diverged from the furniture and, and into sculptural work. Hmm. And I eventually developed... Uh, a fascination and uh, uh, a fondness for creating sculptures, and that went from there. And fast forward two or three years, and I had my work in three galleries in my uh, wow. my hometown here. So, and my my sculptures became. And that 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 the second book you're referring to, the uh, wood artist, is is that the path from uh, from conventional woodworking to wood art. So that would yeah. possibly interest somebody trying to make that migration. The, the first book is is my transition from uh, from my uh, my software and my technology background to woodworking, uh, 
And so the second book, uh, furniture making, and the second book is actually moving from uh, furniture making to wood art. And uh, I do both now, by the way. So that's... Uh, that is um, fascinating. I'm just thinking, hmm, what can you learn from those transitions? I think that transitions is where, you know, learning takes place. You didn't know something, now you do. So there's a transition there. In your case, you went from the corporate world into the woodworkers world. Were you able to extract, you know, lessons that you can generalize then perhaps, you know, people that are making similar transition, not necessarily from corporate job to, you know, self-employed, but mm -hmm. uh, it could be somebody who is moving, say, from one country migrates to another country. So the, those types of big transitions, um, somebody who is moving interstate, for example, and totally changes the way that they live. Are there any general lessons that somebody can learn from reading your book? Uh, to be uh, to be persistent. Yeah. And to, uh, you'll have a, a series of uh, successive uh, letdowns and uh, I'm not sure of the word, but uh, disappointments and- uh, Be ready for those. It could quite be quite discouraging. And, uh, but you, persistence, uh, persistence pays off. And I mm -hmm. say that today, but I, I remember the journey, and it was it was quite a considerable struggle to uh, to uh, to have it happen, but yeah. uh, it's paid off for me. And I, I don't look back now. I I'm glad I left that industry. Yeah. Actually, if you put yourself if you put yourself back in in that time as you were moving away from corporate, did you have a clear idea of where you were going? So, for example. Did you know that you were going to have Pirello Design as a business then? Or were you no. still trying to figure out <laughs> what is that no. you'll be doing? No. Yeah. No. Actually, uh, you mentioned that, and I'm uh, I'm really not a planner at heart. <laughs> yeah. I sort of stumbled onto things as I go along, and it sort of it makes it exciting for me. I really don't plan. Mm. <laughs> but uh, just to give you a better idea of how little I plan, the title for that first book was uh, one of the titles I'd come up with was The Accidental Woodworker. Hmm. Just to get an idea that there was no plan. So <laughs> the plan was yeah. the plan was to leave to leave one industry and migrate to another right. transition, but no plan. Interesting. So what I, what I understand then is that you knew that you wanted to leave, right? That exactly. that was something that you had certainty about. You didn't want to go back, and in order to make that happen you persisted and you went through that change even though it was scary because you just didn't know where you were going but you knew that you wanted to leave i guess that's a lesson on its own yeah if there's a takeaway from all this is to be to to have a considerable confidence in yourself and what you can achieve hmm. and to ensure that you're uh, whatever you're leaving be it career country you're completely satisfied that the decision to leave is, is the correct one Mm, yeah, and uh, that is uh, that's an important part of the uh, the journey because if you have like I, I I'm only saying this because I didn't actually make that clean cut. I had doubts, and the doubts actually slowed my transition and spread it out over a number of years. But if you're if you can remove all doubts and uh, ensure that your decision is the correct one for yourself, then it just speeds things up because you know you need you need to leave an industry or a country or 
or something <laughs> to, yeah. to change your life. Exactly. I, I wonder if that is at all possible. I wonder if it's possible to go through a transition like that without any doubt. <laughs> I think it's just human nature to have doubt constantly, but to have Absolutely. the strength to deal with it. Yeah. I don't think there is a, a way to do it without doubt, without having doubts about the decision and yeah. just doubting yourself. Because uh, I left a very lucrative, high-paying career yeah. to go into one of the lowest-paying careers. <laughs> so just well, there was no sense to it. There was no logic. There was no logic. Most people do it the other way. <laughs> yeah, so. that's, that makes it even harder. But the, I guess you need to have strength of character to say, uh, this is definitely what I want to do. Don't, don't know how, but it, it will happen. So, so, when I, so I basically uh, essentially st uh, stumbled onto the opportunities as they came along. Now, I, uh, we mentioned the fact that I'm a woodworker and a furniture maker and designer and wood artist. But uh, 20 years ago, I also stumbled onto uh, instructional, uh, instructional learning. Mm. This might interest uh, your audience. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, it was very, uh, it was in its infancy at the time. Could you describe what? What that is first, uh, Norman, like instructional learning, uh, that's a term, but what does it mean? Well, it means uh, instructional courseware mm -hmm. on different subjects. For So I, uh, I, uh, I embraced it and I, uh, I developed uh, one of the earliest woodworking courses that you could actually learn from on a computer at the time. Uh, so you would go, it was consisted of modules and lessons. And after every module, after every module, there's a series of questions, and you are graded. Oh, I see. So, yeah. So what you're saying is that as as you were becoming a woodworker yourself, uh, one of the things you did early on was to also become an instructor, and and create instructional courses on how other people can become yes. woodworkers, right? So yes. that's something you yes. picked up yes. fairly early on. Yes, and this is actually the 20th anniversary of that course, that very early course, and it was it was nothing on the market at the time, and uh, no way for people to learn computer woodworking. This was before, 10 years before YouTube existed. So you're distributing your courses, were the video courses or a paper? No, what was the it like? video was, uh, was in its infancy then. Mm -hmm. It was almost impossible to do anything with video because... Yeah. Uh, there was no standardization, so I could you needed create film. videos. Yeah, it was it just didn't work. I, we we tried a little bit later, but today it's all video. Today that same course exists, a series of courses, but they're all video. They're lecture based right. and uh, that sort of thing. But the first ones were not lecture based. They were oh they were lecture based, but they were uh, a series of images. So you went through this reading, looked at an image, understand topic and and answer questions so it's it was print it was print yeah it was print but it worked it worked then it was uh, fairly successful and uh, we managed to get some of the uh, courseware into some system teaching uh, institutions mm -hmm. uh, i'll just mention one it's fairly popular in the u.s cleveland institute of electronics right so your course was taken by the instructors there and was used as curriculum uh See, I'm not sure. They purchased uh, they purchased in volume, so I think they sold them to students. So I, okay. I would actually go onto their website, CIE website, and uh, there was a woodworking category, and students could purchase the course. But I'm not sure if it was part of a curriculum for uh, mm -hmm. one of their in-house courses, or if it's just something, some self-interest or something. So I'm not sure. Uh, 
Yeah. But something happened. <laughs> it was successful. So I uh, discovered that little niche and uh, worked with that for a number of years. And the, the the course evolved as technology evolved. So when I when I mentioned I've actually transitioned from high tech to low tech, that's not 100% true. Yeah. In fact, just to be able to do what I do is I have to be involved with uh, computer technology in a, in a larger way. I don't actually work for a corporation anymore, but but I've embraced a lot of software along the way. Like I do CAD work and I... Uh, you need to create videos and mm. and sort of the courses. The courses I offer more courses now and tutorials and they're they're well not so much the tutorials but the courses are all lecture based. So I they've, they've transitioned from uh, they moved away from the image and text based courses and they're full video now, which is uh, which is what people want today. So yeah, it's so much format. so much more immersive. Exactly, so, you know, you're not a woodworker only or an artist so you're also a teacher right and yes. uh, i guess if you were to um i suppose segment your time among those three items um what would it be like like would it be you know 25 25 50 do you spend more time teaching for example do you spend more time creating unique pieces of furniture or of you know pieces of art or making cabinets <laughs> how would you split your time uh that's a very very good question actually because that that's changing every mm. year mm. so I, I spend less time teaching now and i plan to spend more time teaching <laughs> but i at the moment i spend i don't spend enough time teaching but i do teach so for example i would teach one-on-one -on -one students or two-on-one mm. in my own studio and because uh, it's it's a very large studio and it's was developed for that reason, uh, along with furniture design and furniture making. But I uh, continue to uh, develop and uh, and evolve my uh, my online courseware that I continue to offer. Although the market is uh, considerably more competitive today than it ever was. So. Of course, yeah. Um, I've got a question on this very topic actually, and um, I'm wondering, you know, woodworking. It's a very, very old art. It's, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but I'd say, it, at least to me, it doesn't seem it has the sex appeal. And sorry about the, I'm not sure if this is the right word, but let's say the sex appeal of, um, let's say, Arduino, right? And Raspberry Pi, especially. The, mm -hmm. These things come out with flashing lights and uh, state-of-the-art curricula and... Uh, look at what you can do with this and that and the other and kids know about those things because they've got motors and they can make robots and, and so on woodworking seems to be like this very very old thing and i need a workshop and i need tools and i, I may lose a finger you know as, as i'm cutting a piece of wood and it, it's dangerous therefore mm. especially for younger kids so i wanted to, to check what is the state of woodworking these days? Do you see that people become more interested or losing interested, or what's your feeling? It's um, it's a, you know that's Peter. It's a, it's an incredibly good question, and I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm trying to understand that myself. I see a resurgence in woodworking right now at the mm -hmm. moment because of the maker movement. Yeah, and because of uh, the advent of YouTube and all this online video people are 
experimenting and they're actually going back to woodworking for some reason. Yeah. So I see more and more woodworkers uh, creating videos than ever. And the maker movement is very strong, as you're, you're mm. probably aware. Mm. I mean, you're obviously aware. So I think um, the solution is to to take the traditional woodworking and combine it with uh, some technology yeah. and make everybody happy so they can still create using wood. But, for example, use uh, CNC and yes. 3D printers, create smaller components yeah, that are what? used in furniture. <laughs> yeah, when it talks about uh, tools. Well, that's actually been that's actually occurring now. I belong to a an association, and some of the woodworkers in the association have embraced uh, 3D printing to create small parts for furniture, hmm. like parts for joinery. So, so it's occurring now. It's uh, so I, I would say there's a there's a large resurgence and appreciation for this at the moment. That yeah. um, I should mention here that that's how I found you. Um, so the story is that I released a course about a year ago, about a year and a half ago, about a Raspberry Pi. So I built a Raspberry Pi and a few bits and pieces that go with it and the software that goes with it. And I use it to control my bench. So I, I press a button on the screen, it's a touch screen. I press a button and my um, soldering iron is turned on, press another button, lights turn on, things like that. And one of the students in that course actually made made a wooden case for my Raspberry Pi and the, the bench computer. Before that, I have I put the Raspberry Pi inside a cardboard box that looked totally ugly. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Right. <laughs> I used I used the tape to hold it together. It was pretty bad. So he took pity on me and he he custom built a wooden case and he sent it to me. It was already mm-hmm. you know put together nicely and perfect work like a one-of-a-kind piece and um that made me interested in woodworking so i thought i've got a 3d printer but there's no way i could have built something as beautiful as that with you no know, plastic and my 3d printer it just you know it wouldn't look good but with wood you can actually build things like that that interest makers because now i, I know i combine my raspberry pi with uh, a beautiful piece of furniture and now this thing is is really a beautiful piece of furniture it's not just uh, an electronic device mm-hmm. so that's how i started looking online for courses and uh, that's how i found you <laughs> just to make the long story short oh okay um and i thought if i did that there's probably other people that would be feeling the same way and would be interested in this and and that's, that's what, interesting you mentioned that yeah. because uh uh, I think two years ago, I was approached by a couple of uh, people. One of the, one of the people I used to work with, and they asked me to make uh, a similar wooden box for an electronic Enigma machine. Hmm. You know the German decoder, yeah. yep. World War II, encrypted. I thought that's what you were uh, leading into. <laughs> that you found out that I made that. Oh no, I didn't did know about that. about that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was very interesting. <laughs> so I spent uh, two weeks designing and building it so they can fit their electronics into it and it was, it was quite a success so it's uh hmm. it's an authentic uh modeled on the authentic german enigma case yeah so it houses everything all the internals are electronics but the case would and it's there's it's in my blog i blogged about it so very interesting i think there is um there is something there i've seen people you know creating custom wooden enclosures for things like internet radios 
and uh, speakers and uh, clocks and things like that. So they combine this old natural material uh, with workmanship and knowledge that goes back thousands of years with state-of-the-art technology. And I think that appeals to makers. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that, if you like, about you know being a maker, what that means for you. And maybe a, I'm also very interested about um, the tools that you use, if you'd like to take a few minutes and perhaps tell us uh, what is your favorite tool these days. Um, we can make it high-tech, say so one high-tech and one low-tech tool. Uh, well, for high tech, I, I, I use a computer. You just can't get away from computers. You use CAD, right? Computer aided design. I use CAD. I use SketchUp. Yes, Google. Hmm. And uh, I use uh, video editing software mm-hmm. for my my videos, yeah. and possibly some other software that I can't think of right now. Uh, whatever uh, whatever technology helps me to do my uh, my work, facilitate my work, and that's something I. I should address because when I actually worked in computer field as a career, I, when I mentioned earlier, I became disillusioned with it. I think it was because it was a, it was a job, it was a career. Mm-hmm. But I, I've taken a different approach to to the, the whole industry now, and I'm actually embracing software now because I'm using it for my own, for my own, <laughs> for woodworking and for for teaching and for creating courseware. So I'm falling fallen in love with with computers again in that regard not not as much as woodworking but uh, yeah, I haven't turned my back on computers and I've embraced them more more so than ever of course because I'm actually my approach now as a user as opposed to uh, supporting them or developing software for others <laughs> I guess you, as a maker so, right as makers one of the things as a maker as a maker yeah, like so. we have to constantly learn uh, new skills and software is a big part of it. You probably learned more than uh, you ever have, no matter just looking at the work that you do, but both to support your business and, and your uh, woodworking. Like, would you agree that, again, you constantly learn because you need to apply all these new things into your woodworking, into your teaching, and into your art constantly? It, it never becomes stable? Yes, yes. Regarding, uh, yes, yes. Well, not mm. so much the woodworking. The woodworking is, uh, I, I still focus on traditional woodworking. Mm-hmm. I use a combination of uh, hand tools and some machinery uh, when I really try to keep technology out of that realm. Right. Because that's this is my uh, my, my space, my quiet space, so I, I I do furniture design, and so I try, I try not to mix technology with that. Yeah. But as far as marketing and, and courseware and teaching, I have to embrace computer software and computers. To like, I have to keep up with advances and all the software. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just like anything else. Uh, you can't get away from that. So I'm okay with that as long as I there's a happy medium yep. of uh, traditional and uh, and technology for me. Absolutely, yeah, I find the same. Um, I'd like to maybe switch to learning for the next few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to know, what is your advice to people? It could be like perhaps somebody like me, um, like a Peter <laughs> out there, like a, 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 a maker who is interested in woodworking and would like to learn but you know they, they live in an apartment or in a house where they, they can't dedicate a space for 
uh, a woodworking studio or a workshop. And I know that some of the tools that you use in woodworking are quite big and noisy. What is the best way for them to learn at least you know, the, the basics of woodworking so they can build something beautiful for themselves? And not say uh, something small, beautiful. It's not necessarily big. I can start with my course, my online course. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> a little plug there. But <laughs> but I would uh, suggest or recommend uh, following uh, an evening course or a weekend course at a community college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and secondly, there are uh, quite a few uh, furniture making and woodworking schools now. You're, you're in Australia, correct? Yes. I think there are quite a few there. They are. But in North America, there are considerable uh, schools on both coasts and in the Midwest where you can actually attend a course for a week or two. So you're, uh, it's an immersion course. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have basic woodworking. And that's what I offer here too, by the way. This is my one-on-one or one-on-two training. Is uh, Right, so people can come to you. Nah, well, I focus mostly on different aspects of furniture making. But for the general knowledge as these schools and community colleges they, they still offer the woodworking courses there there's uh, so many different ways to learn it uh, now you mentioned earlier that uh, about the noise aspect and the small spaces that that's another subject and mm-hmm. there is a movement towards uh, traditional woodworking because it doesn't involve machinery so you can actually yeah. create furniture using hand tools which is something I uh, I preach so what, um, yeah, tell us uh, more about it, because that, that sounds like a very you know, compelling proposition to begin with. Uh, you don't need power tools, you need like a few basic hand well, tools. In the, in the past, people, uh, people had homes with, uh, I'm not sure if you have basements in your country, but they were able to set up hmm. larger woodworking spaces within and have the luxury of having machines to process wood and that sort of thing. Hmm. But with the, uh, the advent of condominiums and smaller spaces and the noise uh, limitations, restrictions, they no longer can have machines. And woodworking machines are incredibly noisy. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a, there's a large, large movement back to traditional woodworking and uh, specifically hand tools, very much like woodworking that was performed 150 years ago before hmm. machines. So this works really well in the condominium, so you can have a small space. You don't actually generate dust doing that. Yeah, it's mostly shavings because mm. dust is really a, a byproduct of machines. Yeah. Shavings are fine. They don't float in the air and affect your lungs and permeate uh, your living spaces. So traditional woodworking in a small space works well, and people are really, really moving towards this. There are actually some schools. There's one in the city now over from mine. It's called the Unplugged Workshop. Hmm. They've gone to an extreme. They've gone to the extreme of not having even one machine. So they call it the Unplugged Workshop. The only thing that actually they plug in is a light bulb, for example, so you can see what you're doing. It's really low-tech, isn't it? (laughs) Really, really. They've gone. I I, I don't even go that far. But they've gone completely low-tech because they have a waiting list of people. Because the people that don't have the luxury of being able to have machines in their in their workshops and their well their makeshift workshops, so 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 it's interesting you brought that up because there there is a solution. You don't need large space. You can just have a workbench with some small tools, some hand tools, and uh, start making furniture. It's quite that's quite so lengthier weird. to do it. This is so weird. Um, you know, since that you know, for a maker who is immersed in computers and 
electronics constantly, probably the best way to get into woodworking is to go totally low-tech and do what people did 115, 200 years ago and start building um, wooden items that way. This is very, it's great. <laughs> well, I, uh, some parts, part of my training, I, I, I mentioned I did a three-year cabinet making program, but then I, uh, I discovered a fine furniture making school. And I discussed that in the book. It's almost mm -hmm. a whole chapter dedicated to that. And it's an immersive, an immersive uh, environment. And a uh, large part of the, uh, the curriculum involves traditional woodworking. And these many schools like this are appearing now, are popping up. So it's traditional woodworking that involves hand tools. And this yeah. is where I, I fell in love with uh, hand tools because before that, prior to that, I, I did work with machines almost exclusively. Yeah. So I've, yeah. I've, I've, I, even within the woodworking world, I've sort of done a career change and shifted from machines to to low tech, I still use machines, of course, but but I uh, really become very appreciative of traditional woodworking, yeah. and it's worked. Like I said, it's very advantageous now to be able to do that because of the, uh, the limitations of condominium spaces that people right. just don't have large workshops anymore. I think you have a course on hand tools, right? I think the hand tool class. Yes. So, do you think yes. that somebody like me would be able to take that class and get those tools and uh, Know, make furniture at home what i recommend to people is actually do a woodworking course before all right so good so woodworking course yeah. is, uh, covers uh just the, the wood itself mm -hmm. understanding wood and uh, its properties and joinery and then the hand tool class is, is uh delves into uh the use of hand tools to be able to create joinery and right and yeah. finishing surfaces of wood so because unlike the kind of courses that I teach, like electronics and, and programming. With woodworking, you actually need to learn how to hold those tools, um, the different properties of, of wood, and there's many different kinds of wood, and, and all those are hands-on things that really you need to be an apprentice of someone, like a teacher, in, in a face-to-face -face type of learning environment. So at least you need to get the basics in that way and then move on to video instructional content is that right well no you would actually begin with the video right and then you just get you know, a general overview of uh of woodworking for example in a woodworking course mm. and then so you know, at least you know where you're at like how much knowledge do you already have you already right you know nothing and then you could uh, decide what type of woodworking you would like to uh, pursue uh for traditional and then you could go to hand tool route for example and uh either through the online course or, or attending a school. Like I'm not really advocating my online courses. I'm just, they're there. And it's it's convenient for people to be able to at least dip their toe into the uh, woodworking world to determine if they even uh, want to pursue it. Yes, that's right. Because the, uh, the actual investment of flying out somewhere to do a course or going through a community college, the time investment and is, we're talking like hundreds and thousands of dollars. So. Yeah. Better be sure you want it, <laughs> you committed to it. Yeah, exactly. So unless you, uh, yeah, before you make a commitment like that is to, to at least determine if, you know, some people they think, oh, well, you know, it's just joining a few pieces of wood, but there's there's considerably more to it. I wanted to ask you, Norman, do you teach kids? And um, in your experience, when is a good age, I guess, 
for people to start learning woodworking? I would say 16 and above. Right. But with limitations, it's sort of like, a, I would say, have a, like a graduated driver's license because mm. there is some machinery involved. It's uh, for liability reasons and all that. Yeah. I can't really teach anybody under 18, but at 16, 14 or 16, you can begin to learn. You can begin to whittle. You can begin to use hand tools and possibly migrate to using machinery later in your in the teens. Yeah. So just because they're dangerous machines and you really have to have your head screwed on straight to, and focus on <laughs> Yes, understand the risks. The risks are... Uh, it's hard to leave somebody there using a machine if they're not focused on it. Let's say that uh, like a 16-year-old um, starts learning or in- is interested in learning woodworking, uh, even if it's you know, the, the very basics of woodworking that doesn't include any high-powered machines. I'm just thinking, what would be the, the particular benefits for that person as they're growing? So just to put it in context, we very often say, oh, if... If young kids learn how to program, they're going to have all these amazing benefits as they're growing up and, you know, computational thinking and learning to think analytically and all that. Are there some benefits similar to those that kids that are learning the basics at least of woodworking and some experience in it that they'll be able to carry into their normal lives later on? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that that's, uh, you touched on a good point. That's lacking today because... Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about your country, but in the uh, U.S. and Canada, they've they've over the years uh, been uh, doing away with a wood shop. Yes, the same and, here. Uh, and yeah. Same thing. Yeah, so they've uh, removed all that in favor of a computer uh, classrooms. Yeah, computer dominated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, I'm uh, <laughs> total disagreement with that. Like, I, I come from both worlds. I've spent decades in both worlds now. And creating, and it's uh, it's doing a disservice to our youth to not have them sit there and and, and patiently create something with their hands or mm-hmm. use their hands to to create an object. It's something I would say it's almost mandatory to use it throughout your life. You'll right. you know for some reason you later on you you at least know there's an option. If for example you you do uh, study computers or like I did, and you find out that it's really not not your calling you could maybe revert back to that you you've had some exposure Mm. to woodworking or making or using or doing anything with your hands Mm. so because because they've taken all this wood shop away or all this uh hands-on training uh, in schools uh, school children today teenagers are not even aware that this world this uh, alternative world exists this this more than ikea right (laughs) exactly you know they just assume Every everything's purchased in a store, but it doesn't have to be that way. So is it that, you know, that what we are missing out or what young people who don't have these opportunities are missing out is, you know, the, the classic maker skills of you know, ingenuity, being able to use your hands and your mind together to build something, the traditional materials as well, like how important wood is even today in almost everything that we do. In your opinion, what are the things that, kids are missing out that don't have this opportunity today? Well, like I mentioned earlier, there is a resurgence mm-hmm. of uh, learning, uh, creating uh, objects with the hands because of the maker movement. Mm-hmm. But part of the maker movement involves does have wood for just a small example is the case you were referring to earlier. Yeah. 
referring to the case to hold to contain the electronics, the one I built yeah. and the one you and Edith have built. So because of that exposure, people are also um, discovering wood again, and yeah. woodworking through yeah. that maker movement. So I'm, I'm I'm very positive that this is a good uh, development and we might actually, I think I've read somewhere in some industry periodicals that some counties in the U.S. have actually brought back some woodworking training because yeah. they've realized it was a, a mistake and there aren't enough people out there yeah. that are woodworking today. So, And, and that's uh, because uh, it's one of those skills that are really needed but that, that don't seem to attract people in that industry as a career, right? Furniture exactly. makers, for example. Yeah. So there is also career opportunity. It's a good point because what you said is, uh, you know, the whole hands-on thing with the maker movement. But then again, it's not a career. And uh, mm. the young people today, I don't think, are embracing this as a career any longer. Yeah. It's uh, primarily a hobby or a, an interest or a pastime, something interesting. But as a career, it's, uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, where it's scary. But there's a concern that people are no longer looking at this as a career. So... The, uh, the corollary to that is uh, is the development, the automation of uh, furniture making. Industrialized, yeah. It's so f become so automated, a lot of it, that they've overcome that uh, that drawback of not having uh, people enter the uh, skilled people enter the uh, the industry any longer. So they can overcome that with through machinery, through yes. automation. Yeah. But. It's 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 rapidly evolving, and what I tell you now could could, could change in a year or two. I'm not sure what the trend yeah. is. But I think uh, even though the furniture making business is really industrialized now, the artistic aspect and the, the hobbyist in a way aspect uh, is never going to fade away. Especially when there's people making things, there will uh, there are going to be people that want to make things with wood. So from that point of view, I think uh, it's probably. Uh, golden age coming up for woodworking well yes when the duck duck actually uh actually dovetails into uh the path i've taken i've, mm -hmm. I've uh the furniture i make is unique one-of-a-kind pieces every piece is different from the other piece yeah it's more of a, a combination of woodworking furniture making and art because you manage uh, the industry is not set up to create uh furniture like this it's, yeah. it's mass-produced consumer-oriented and it's really not designed so this is the niche that uh people entering this field could could work towards because this is actually a very stable and growing niche mm -hmm. people there is still a market for unique one-of-a-kind furniture pieces and art and so a sculptural work and wood and other yeah. medium so that's this is a you know a good reason to uh to to, to learn these skills if and uh and a way, a way for people to to convert the skills into, uh, what's a career, but uh, some form of uh, some way to earn money to as well subsist from. Yeah. Yes, that's great advice. But um, I think just looking at the time, let's move into some so-called rapid fire questions. <laughs> well, actually, we never stick to the name. We say that let's do some rapid fire questions and then take us another half an hour, but it's okay. It doesn't matter. I wanted to ask you, Norman, because we have quite a few educators, teachers listening to our podcast, what advice would you give teachers 
in relation to woodworking and assume that you know, these teachers uh, are not woodworkers themselves, but they do appreciate the importance and what it can contribute to the student's education. So what can you say to them? Uh, I would say don't dismiss woodworking as a skill that's had its time or is mm -hmm. from another period. Embrace it because the process of learning woodworking as a student develop their hand-eye coordination for one. Mm. They, they create objects, they're satisfied because they've actually created something they can actually take home with them. So there are uh, other uh, aspects of woodworking that are, don't have to be specific to woodworking. So the fact that so so they, the students might might uh, realize that they uh, they're very creative yeah. with their hands. Yeah, not necessarily woodwork. It could be metalworking. It could be anything else involving their hands. Yeah, uh, and uh, so they could discover this uh, this opportunity, this uh, creative aspect that uh, that hasn't come forward, hasn't hmm. hasn't come through. Just from yeah. from computer studies, for example, or from textbook studies. Yeah, I'm thinking in the context of STEM education, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and or STEAM. When you put an A there, I'm just thinking that woodworking applies in just uh, in multiple areas. Like you can see woodworking definitely being part of a science project or an engineering project, like building frames, for example, building a, a wooden you know, bridge in order to show the, the various tensions at various parts of the bridge. So it definitely comes into technology and science, but definitely it comes into the A, into the art part of STEAM as well, because you can express yourself as an artist through wood, just like mm -hmm. you do no one. So, mm -hmm. It's one of those things where you can, uh, whatever you learn can be applied in so many different areas. So it's definitely something worth looking at. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. We could actually just simply look at wood as, as one medium. Mm -hmm. So if you just consider it as a... Like canvas, right? For painters. Exactly. Yeah. So just, just consider it as just a medium and you're, if the goal is to, uh, to introduce students to the creative, uh, Creativity, hmm. anti coordination, creating objects. Just consider wood as a medium, so it yeah. doesn't necessarily have to. Doesn't lead into a woodworking career. Exactly. And exactly. So this is the mistake people make. They just assume well, woodworking's a thing of the past. Not really. Working with the medium, working with your hands, is not. So you don't necessarily have to follow through and become a woodworker. Yes. You can Sorry. use those skills. You can for, be a programmer and be a woodworker. <laughs> right. Well, you, there, there's, uh, you know, people are surprised at the, the amount of thought and, and engineering that, that goes into furniture making. You know, people just dismiss it. But I, I, I've designed a couple of chairs and I could not believe the amount of the ergonomics and the science mm. that goes into chair design. And I've had to learn all this and actually learned yeah. all this on my own. Yes, so, to, to make a good chair, you need to be uh, knowledgeable in anatomy, for example, so that it's comfortable, right? Yes, so. yes. Yeah, but there's just a whole, a whole uh, three or four stresses that chairs are subject to because you're actually unlike a, a static piece of furniture, it's a dynamic piece of furniture. So if you're sitting on it, you're you're introducing stresses into mm. the joints. Mm. Uh, so it's a, it's a whole different world of woodworking yeah. uh, involving uh, engineering, 
mathematics, technology, and science. Yeah, there you go. It it's all there. <laughs> Um, and I've got another question. Uh, so we we love books and we read books constantly. Uh, at least I, I try to read whenever I have a few minutes. And you've got some very interesting books that obviously you recommend <laughs> to everybody. But apart from your books, is there one or two books that you'd recommend people to read? Perhaps books that influenced you a lot as well and informed you as a woodworker and teacher? Uh, well... I'm a very uh, huge follower and disciple of uh, somebody called James Krenoff. I've mm -hmm. probably never heard the name. No. But he is uh, a traditional woodworker, and he just passed away a few years ago. But he uh, worked with mid-century modern uh, designs, and, and uh, he's written a series of books. His name is James Krenoff. He's written a series of books mostly about the philosophy, the mindset behind woodworking. Yeah. Uh, so he uh, just... He talks about the skills, of course, but the books sort of romanticize the whole uh, mm -hmm. woodworking experience. And uh, if you if have any doubts about actually getting into woodworking and furniture making, after reading his books, a lot of people have uh, converted. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's not, not so much a how-to book at all. It's, it's mostly about uh, the, the, the appreciating wood and, and the different characteristics of wood and using... So normally, a normal furniture maker would would design a piece of furniture and just grab some wood and use that wood to build the furniture. But mm. James Cranoff had a totally different approach. He would design one-of-a-kind, unique pieces of furniture based on the wood. So he would examine the oh. wood and look at its characteristics, its colors, right. and, uh, and then come up with a design to... Uh, to accentuate these characteristics in the wood. So it's a totally different perspective oh, of furniture yes. making. It's so interesting. Quite interesting. So his, his approach was to not dominate the medium, is to, to work with the medium, you know, to blend with it. Exactly. Not so much to use a medium as a medium, but prioritize the medium itself and yeah. bring it to the forefront. And then that's a whole philosophy. <laughs> that's a whole philosophy they are on its own. Like you can go so far with that. Yeah, there's actually a lot of. Uh, the school I attended, fine furniture making the school, was a derivative of a college of the Redwoods in California that uh, James Krenoff was, uh, I think, the main instructor for, for many, many years. And he offered a year or two long courses, their curriculums, programs on furniture making. So the person, one of the founders of the school I attended was actually a student there for two years. So, so it was very interesting how, uh, how we brought back all that knowledge and created, he opened his own school and then it's sort of a, a recursive thing, you might say. So yeah. I, I've embraced that knowledge and I carry it forward. So That's amazing. Yeah. I'm going to put that in my reading list because I, I see the whole philosophy of life as well. I want to explore that from that perspective of. Yeah, I think, I think you will enjoy them. Yeah. James Cranoff, I think there were four or five books. I'm going to look them up. <laughs> um, K-R-E-N-O-V. Let me just do a quick search now. Uh, so James, so K-R-E-S-N-O. No, K-R-E-N-O-V, Krenov. Krenov, got it, yeah. There's a Swedish background. Got him, yeah, James Krenov, yeah, woodworker. Born in Siberia, <laughs> 1920 in Russia. Wow. Yeah. All right. I'm going to include those in the show notes as well. 
along with your books. Um, and I think there's going to be great resources for people. I have other books. I have other books. Lately, I uh, I read, I, I migrate towards books, uh, more philosophical books on hmm. on the why and how of why people do things as opposed to just the technical aspects. How to do things, yeah. Why, uh, philosophy behind woodworking, philosophy behind making. And I study uh, early uh, makers, what drove them, what motivated them, what inspired them. That's that's what I enjoy today. Not so much the how-to books as I have. Uh, I must have 200 how-to books here, and I've stopped reading them because I write my own books. You know, I developed my own coursework on how to, so I'm a little yeah. bit past that stage. But for somebody starting out and unsure of things, maybe it's a good idea just to read about uh, the books I just referred to, to uh, develop yeah. a different appreciation of wood and not so much just, uh, you know, the mechanical aspect of wood. Absolutely. Media. I think as, as a teacher as well, and I'm just saying that again because a lot of our listeners are teachers. You need to go beyond the how, right? The students very often are inspired not by the how so much, but because of the why. Why do I need to do this? Like I, I get that a lot from my students as well. And even when I was teaching at university, students would constantly ask, "Why am I supposed to learn this?" <laughs> okay, the how it's it's fine. It's technical. It's it's the why that seems to be more important in, in most learning situations. And I think that the, the role of the teacher in a large extent is also to convey that rather than how. That's a good point um, because I, uh, I must say that uh, I sort of become that way because of my, my formative years in school were talking about 35, 40 years ago. Hmm. I, I went through the school system and we were just told to learn things and never, yes. never question why. And I'll just give you an example. I had a very, I had a difficulty with mathematics, uh, specifically uh, calculus. And there's only one, when I, uh, one of the courses in the program I was studying at the time was applied calculus, that everything made sense for me all of a sudden. Mm. Because mm -hmm. I just yes. can, uh, you know, can apply it in, a, <laughs> in certain contexts. So I, 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 maybe I'm an individual that needs to, to understand why I do things or why I should be doing things. So, so I'm not the only one. No, uh, definitely. Judging from what you're saying. Uh, most people are like that, like, um, especially because you're a maker, you need to know why you do something. Like, there's gotta be a purpose mm -hmm. as a maker. But I do think that most people learn better if they have a reason, uh, not just a- Well, we're saying that, but I also do wood art, right? Yes. And uh, wood art is, uh, is completely speculative work. You just- Exploratory, yeah. It, it's it's well we call it the word we use the word this uh, building on spec mm -hmm. so it's speculative so you just create the piece and put it out there to see if <laughs> yeah. so you don't actually query people to see if this is the right the right direction you just make the piece as an artist it's like uh, painting on a canvas you just mm. create the piece uh, without any uh, agenda or motives and then uh, and then work from there. Okay. Well, that, that was definitely not uh, a couple of rapid fire questions. So <laughs> it's just, it's okay though. I really enjoyed that. So um, just to close um, our interview, Norman, um, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, well, I have two websites and I'm on, uh, I'm on social media. Yeah. I have a, a large, uh, a large uh, exposure on social media through Instagram and Twitter. 
Yeah. Uh, so you and Twitter, you? My Twitter handle is Woodskills. Yep. And the uh, Instagram is Woodskills Mag. Yep. Woodskills yeah. with M A G one word. Got it. Or or Pirolo Design. So that's your main website at PirolloDesign.com, and your courses and books are there as well. And you've got a magazine well, as well, actually, right? The, the course, courses and books are, are there and at Woodskills. Woodskills is more of a educational site. Yeah. Okay. We'll have both on our website. And there's a magazine as well that you publish uh, called the Woodskills magazine. Yes. And actually, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that because today is the day that I uh, I just released uh, issue two of uh, Woodskills oh, awesome. magazine. Great. <laughs> this is a magazine yeah. that I've uh, launched. I developed... Uh, late last year mm -hmm. and uh, worked with a very, very small team. We had an early issue in the spring, issue one, and we're just today, realistically speaking, today is the day <laughs> I just released issue two. So uh, it's a, it has a different uh, approach to woodworking magazines because I've uh, I've written for magazines. I've been uh, a contributor to magazines, woodworking for years, and I really don't like what I see anymore. So I've taken a different approach. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, so, so that's, that's the magazine. Semi-annual magazine. I can see here the first issue. You talk about woodworkers and building woodworker profiles, how to improve your studio, hand tool techniques, and uh, discover tools to work. Yes, yeah. focus on hand tools. And the second issue is uh, just uh, so I'm not a complete Neanderthal. Uh, we use the term we use in the woodworking world. Uh, <laughs> You just uh, disassociate yourself from technology. There's a there's a chapter on social media, how to work with social media as a furniture yeah. maker. It's a furniture maker edition. So some of the topics pertaining to furniture making specifically. Uh, so highly recommended. Hopefully there'll be a there'll be a third and a fourth issue. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's worth the effort going in in there as well. I know it's a, a lot of work, uh, but. A huge, huge undertaking. It's your voice. Much more than I ever anticipated. <laughs> yes, it is your voice. Well, thank you very much, Norman. I really appreciate your time uh, this afternoon uh, in, in Ottawa. Uh, I learned a lot personally. And uh, again, thank you for joining me in this episode of STEMiverse. No, oh, I, I appreciate it. And I, uh, I thank you for, for inviting me. That's all for this episode. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with Norman are available on our website, techexplorations.com forward slash p forward slash stimulus. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a goldmine of information in the notes. This stimulus podcast episode was produced by Tech Explorations. Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a friend or colleague to be our guest? Please email us at pa at txplore.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That's S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. -E -E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.